Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Ikenawamba, Physician Executive at Gentem Health, and today we're joined by Dr. Jim Walton. Thanks for spending some time with us. I'm glad we're able to get you for a little bit. Before we jump into things, tell us a little bit about yourself. What motivated you to become a doctor, and how did you go from Jim Walton to Dr. Jim Walton? Sure, thanks, Ike. I grew up in a doctor's family. My dad was a general practitioner in a lower income community in East Dallas. And growing up as a second son, I followed my dad around in the 60s and 70s, um, making house calls, going to nursing homes, and actually spending some time in his office, shadowing him in his office, and kind of being sometimes being an assistant. Um, and got exposed to medicine, you know, as, as a teenager. Um, I, one of my first jobs worked, I was working in a lab, uh, drawing blood and working as an orderly when I was about 16 or 17 years old. Well, that was back in the day when you could pull that off without a whole lot of credentials. So, um, had a, I had a lot of exposure from a very early age, uh, trying to connect with my dad, um, and then, you know, became, knew that I had an aptitude in science and um, I spent some time in high school in an advanced science um, environment, spending two or three hours a day uh, doing that. Um, and ultimately, you know, graduated high school and went to college and, um, and then got into medical school. My dad was an osteopathic physician, uh, primary care doctor, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be like my dad and do the things he did and and so that's kind of how that all turned. And I became um, a physician <clears throat> in 1982. Uh, I graduated from medical school in Fort Worth, Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Did a rotating internship, 12 months of a rotating internship in all the different disciplines, and then decided I would do an internal medicine residency mm. uh, where I went to uh, an allopathic institution um, at... Um, connected with Wright State University in, in uh, Dayton, Ohio, um, and spent two years there. And then my final year in my medicine residency was spent in, um, at Methodist Hospitals in Dallas. Transferred um, during that time because of a sick, uh, we had a sick child. One of our sons were, was born ill and we had to move home to get some help with our, our sick child. And that's what caused me to change my residency program. But ultimately, mm -hmm. Um, graduated and uh, finished my internal medicine residency and passed the boards and practiced as an internist um, in a little town called Waxahachie, Texas, about 40 miles south of Dallas in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Wow, it sounds like it was a beautiful journey um, <laughs> full of unexpected twists and turns, but you definitely persevered and made it out on the other end. What motivated your decision to go into private practice? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly decided to become a general internist to become a private practitioner in a small town. My, mm. my point of view was I wanted to be providing continuity of care as well as hospital-based care uh, to a population of people. This, you know, obviously preceded the, the uh, hospitalist uh, movement in the United States healthcare system. And so, you know, the model that I had seen and was reared on was your typical 7 a.m. rounds in the hospital doing both floor-based and ICU work, just like you were as an intern or resident. 
but you do that in private practice, going to the office to see your patients and then running back over to the emergency room or to the ICU to check on patients during the day. Mm. And then, and then, and then, you know, finishing up your afternoon uh, office practice and then making rounds and doing admissions at the end of the day and getting home again at seven or seven thirty. Um, those were the days pre EMR and everything was on paper. And, you know, that's, that's the way we did things. Um, and we were on call, you know, every three to five nights for the ER backup. And, uh, we had a small medical group where we shared call rotations. So that was really what, you know, what I expected to do and wanted to do and enjoyed doing, um, um, for the first part of my career. Now we're in the era of EMRs, you know, and private practice has gotten a lot more complicated, but you have taken a role as a leader through the development of an independent physician association. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, just one comment, final comment is that, you know, during the, uh, my father's generation of the doctor, we had kind of the scientific revolution where you had new therapies emerging with new, whether drug therapies or, or interventions, uh, physical interventions for patients. And during my generation, obviously we saw this digital revolution where we move, you know, out of paper onto digital platforms. And, mm. and so every, every healthcare provider, you know, will live through their own generation of transformation and mine just happened to be this, the, the, you know, the digital one, as well as advancements in science and technology and therapeutics. But um, so my, my movement toward, and I would say the culture changed, you know, while we were in practice, as we were trying to raise our children uh, and, you know, growing families, we, we certainly tired of the, the, the burden of call and the, 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 the amount of work we were doing as physicians and, and the compensation was falling and, and the cost of doing business was rising, we certainly got frustrated with the way things were uh, and, and the direction that medicine was going. So we had massive economic transformation taking place in parallel to the digital transformation, as well as the science and technology revolutions that were going on in medicine. So you could see that as kind of three threads of change that were taking place in my career. I had a very keen interest in low-income populations because, again, being in a small Texas town, we we had the haves and the have-nots, and we saw healthcare what we now call healthcare disparities because of social determinants of health. Back then, we didn't have those terms, but now we we have nice lexicon to help explain what the, what was going on that we all that have you know been in training anybody who's been in formalized training understands that there's a disparity in healthcare for, because of social determinants i got very interested mm-hmm. in that in my career and that took me into healthcare administration by virtue of being being given an opportunity to work for a large healthcare system called Baylor Scott and White in in the north texas region to to help shape their community medicine strategy in the in the late 90s and the, and the turn of the century and that really led me into administrative medicine. I got an MBA at the University of Michigan along the way to help give me a context for business, the science of business that, that, that complemented my science, you know, my medical science background. And so now you have this kind of complement of experience of practice and patient care. And now, you, and then 
you know, complemented with business science. And I started thinking a lot about what was broke, you know, what's broken about not only the delivery system, but also the financing system of United States healthcare. And, and of course, you know, over in the, at the, in the same moment, you had a lot of political activity, you know, starting with the Clintons and then, and then culminating with Mr. Obama and the ACA. So in, in, in between there, you had Medicare Part D started by uh, Bush. So you have a lot of transformation in the political policy world that's affecting um, the cost of healthcare. And then, of course, lots of changes with regard to how to, the you know, what I call financing schemes to help try to drive down the growth of cost in American healthcare and the percent of the GDP that, that goes into healthcare for the United States. So that's really got me intrigued. And, and it, it just took, a, I had another career after I stopped practicing full time. I think that the world is, the United States anyway, has woken up to the, the reality that you can't afford all the healthcare that we can provide and that, and, and the attempt to try to do that for just the insured population is truly making American companies less competitive on a global market. And so in the effort to try to control the cost of healthcare to keep American companies competitive uh, in a, in a globalized marketplace, there's been a tremendous focus on why is it so darn expensive in the United States mm. and how do we, why is our financing system the way that it is and how can we change that? Well, what ultimately some of the, some of the conversations that, that have emerged and, and are present today relate to the fact that large swaths of the population don't have access to preventive healthcare and use the healthcare system when it when they're very very sick and they're, it's very dire and it's very very expensive to do that and the cost transfers uh, that that are required to care for uninsured and people who experience you know adverse social determinants of health are are impacting our the American healthcare system. So my you're right my my activity in the early part of my career had has kind of come. Com, is kind of combined with this national awareness of kind of what we would consider a macroeconomic ex experience of how come American healthcare is so expensive for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. and, and now getting more and more limited about who can get to this healthcare because of its affordability problems. So that's really been kind of the latter, the latter part of my career is kind of addressing that in an independent physician association, um, trying to be trying to lead a bunch of independent physicians and helping them understand these forces and how they might respond to them in order to be to to maintain their independent practice and small business entrepreneurs. Wow, thank you for sharing that comprehensive review on the history of healthcare delivery and bringing us up to speed. IPAs, independent physician associations, have been around. Um, however, I've noticed in conversations with colleagues that not everybody knows where to find one or why an IPA is relevant to them. So do you mind giving us a little bit of an sure. insight on that? Yeah, I think there's an there's been an evolution, you know, again, over the the IPA that I uh, am the 
honored to run is a 35 year old company that started as as physicians, you know, small business owners, you know, physicians that are soloists or small medical groups aggregate together and join or voluntarily join an association. It's kind of like joining the county medical society or the state medical association. You pay dues in order for the for the centralized activity to occur on, to your benefit. So IPAs historically helped physicians reduce the burden of evaluating and contracting with uh, health insurers. That's the core function, or that's the basic function that IPAs served in back in the day. And they've continued to do that. They continue to provide credentialing and group contracting um, functions. Now, you don't, you do not have to, you as an individual medical group can choose which contracts they want to participate in that an IPA uh, provides uh, as, as an opportunity. So uh, IPAs have performed that function for quite a long time. They also, they, they also a little bit of a misnomer and that is sometimes an IPA can be a group of physicians who, who have a, um, a very exclusive group of physicians that say, hey, let's all of us, you know, let's, let's say there's 10, med 10 medical groups in a small community decide to come together and work and form an IPA so that they can work together without losing their identity as a corporation, that they maintain their, their, their own identity and financial integrity of themselves. So they are still competitors with one another, but they, they can perform functions as a unit as long as they're not restraining of trade and restraining of competition. And so the Federal Trade Commission uh, pays a lot of attention to the IPAs with regards to their tendency in the past to try to restrict the trade and, and control prices. So sometimes IPAs, if you go back into the history, you'll realize that IPAs mm. tried to control pricing of what they would accept as a price for a contract. That's truly illegal uh, at the federal level, and you can get into a lot of trouble with that. So they that's on the negative side, IPAs, when they, when they become too strong and too aggressive, they try to control price. Um, and um, like working together, kind of like Walmart would want to work together to control pricing for products that they buy. An IPA cannot do that. That's illegal. Uh, a, single, mm. a single physician organization can do that as one financial entity can do that, but an IPA cannot. The second part that IPAs, where they've moved recently in the last, in the, let's say in the last decade, since the passage of the ACA, has been into forming accountable care organizations where they invite members of the IPA into value-based contracts that reward physicians in addition to giving physicians an opportunity to, to uh, be financially rewarded for fee-for-service, uh, they can also earn rewards on improving quality and controlling costs. That's the principle behind accountable care or value-based contracts. 
The problem with that is, is that IPAs have to create a brand new infrastructure that helps with care coordination and quality improvement management and some degree of patient care uh, linkages with the physicians in order to accomplish the uh, goals to earn those financial rewards in addition or on top of fee-for-service charges. So it's kind of like fee-for-service plus uh, shared savings. That's the whole notion of an accountable care organization. So a lot of IPAs oh. have come into existence, new ones, explicitly for that opportunity. And some of that's with CMS, with Medicare, some of that's with Medicaid, and then of course with the traditional Blue Cross and United and Cigna and all the other traditional payers. So it's the, now the term IPA has changed to include this new accountable care activity. And that may be why some younger physicians are now starting to hear about it, but are a little bit confused about what, what is this thing and how, what role does it play in my, in my practice or my career. Wow. Thank you for that explanation. Um, you know, it really helps to hear it from um, uh, an experienced physician that has been in the space and has seen the upside and some of the maybe less favorable uh, outcomes that might arise, but can give a balanced perspective. So thank you very much for that. Sure. Um, Ultimately, I think based on what has been most relevant to physicians in terms of COVID-19, um, private practice has taken a hit and physicians nationwide are looking for solutions or ways to protect the sustainability of their operation uh, what role do you see IPAs yeah. in, in that conversation? Yeah, I, I, man, that's a powerful, big, that's a big question. Um, number one, I think COVID-19 has really laid bare, if you will, the vulnerability of fee-for-service as a structured financing model for American healthcare. And as we all know, there are kind of two camps, you know, at least two camps of physician practice opportunities when you come out of training. One is the employment camp where you're employed by a large healthcare system or large corporation or the independent practice, whereas you set up your own small business. So those are really, let's just essentially say those are the two options we're going to discuss. In both mm -hmm. instances, and, and it's very important for everybody to hear this, in both instances, the COVID-19 has, has laid bare the, the vulnerability of physician employment and physicians running their own business. So there really is not a safe, if you would call it a surefire safe place for physicians in a fee-for-service environment. Uh, when, you're in, when you're dealing with a COVID-19 pandemic, that basically shuts down elective procedures. Now, that's that's the that's the big statement. And so, if if volumes, if elective decisions of patients, or the volumes continue to stay low or go up and down based on epidemic or you know hot spots of COVID nineteen, you will doctors will experience as they have already in the last eight weeks 
a tremendous amount of financial insecurity and instability, whether that's in their employment hours getting cut or in, in their private practice revenues being cut. And so what happens now is that IPAs become very interesting to physicians because now they look like an association of physicians who can have market power and maybe some negotiating power together around how do we change the financing system to be more favorable and stabilize our incomes. And so what's, what's emerging is something that had happened that, that existed in the past and still exists and, and is strong in, other parts of the, in some parts of the country, which is called capitation, or some people would call it prospective payment. So instead of being paid on a fee for service, that is every, everybody I see, I send in a charge and I get paid a certain rate, a negotiated rate, uh, in most cases, that's been discounted, right? And that's what doctors have been complaining about. Now, doctors are aggregating together and arguing for the potential for having prospective payment or capitated payment where they're paid on a, on a monthly basis, on a regular cadence, uh, based on the number of patients who have chosen to be, to, to get their care from that physician. Now, that's generally been um, uh, isolated to primary care physicians, but now there's this larger conversation about, as we all know, specialty physicians, a lot of times take care of people that are chronically ill. For example, diabetic patients that are really delicate and hard to manage, endocrinologists provide the care. Or in Parkinson's cases or multiple sclerosis cases, neurologists play a primary care role. So we can see that there's a lot of instances where specialty physicians also could be interested in prospective or capitated payment. But suffice it to say, insurance companies are interested now in transferring financial risk over to physician, organized physician groups. And that's what an IPA's function can, can be and is probably morphing into which is a way to organize and coordinate what we call clinically integrate primary care and specialty care for a population of people. And then layering in population management tools that help augment what physicians do day in and day out, particularly focusing on social determinants of health that affect patient outcomes and utilization. So, that's kind of where we're headed with, with the COVID-19. I think that's the next, that's the next iteration of this, of where we're going based on the COVID-19 um, pandemic that's affected our healthcare system. Many of my colleagues, uh, many of the physicians that I just read the comments um, online from, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty you know, and I think there's a lot of concern, as you mentioned before, about financial insecurity, the predictability of payments, and how uh, physicians can retain autonomy moving forward. Um, I know that you are uh, sort of the leader of this uh, Genesis Docs, uh, which is a fairly large uh, IPA based out in Texas. You guys have about 1,300 
multi-specialty physicians. So you probably are hearing a lot from these physicians <laughs> as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, based on that, you know, we're, we're interested in hearing about some of the innovations that you, uh, that may have been percolating to the top of conversation for you and, um, you know, kind of those, those perspectives. Yeah. What's really interesting that we have to be pay attention to is that in the Medicare, we call the C, you know, CMS driven re- financing, which of course, as you know, there's a huge baby uh, boomer um, population of people turning 65 on a regular basis. So Medicare covers and is going to cover a tremendous swath of the future healthcare uh, customer, right? And then we have, of course, from the pandemic, we have a bunch of Medicaid patients because of a lot of the people now becoming unemployed, right? And then finally, people who are losing their health insurance are going to increasingly choose uh, the ACA products. So really, you kind of you have to divide. You have to when you think about this from do, from the doctor perspective and innovation, you have to think about the different customer segments and which ones are growing, right? Just like any other business. Mm. So when you think about it, you've got a growing Medicare population, you've got a growing Medicaid population, you have a growing ACA population right now, and you have kind of a contracting commercially insured population. Okay, so you have four populations to think about. Mm. Now, when you think about that, the historic focus of private practice of medicine has been on the commercial population because they pay so much better than Medicare, Medicaid, and the ACA. So most physicians have been, if you will, positioning themselves, not all of them, but most of them, positioning themselves to be attractive to the commercially insured population based on what we're seeing. And that is they pay a lot better. But now you see post-COVID, literally within eight weeks, right? We have seen a a destruction, if you will, of the GDP of the United States. We've seen, you know, um, airline industry for like in North Texas, we're a hub for American Airlines and Southwest Airlines. Literally, they're now down to 10% of what they used to be. They're now at 10% function of where they were three months ago. Not only does that cost them with, employees, but it also affects the, the income statement and the balance sheet of those corporations. So how do you think, how do we as physicians think those, those businesses are going to respond to physicians who are saying that they, they're threatened economically? Well, so is, so is the corporate, the very corporations threatened. Maybe could go bankrupt and go out of business. So doctors have to think about when they're thinking about themselves, when we're thinking about our own stability, we must think about what's going on in the larger macroeconomic environment. And we're, capa- we're capable of that. Now, that being said, there are opportunities today for doctors to clinically integrate together and do a, a great job at saving unnecessary cost for Medicare, for Medicaid, for ACA, and for commercial populations. 
And there are contracts that we can enter into today to, to get prospective capitated payments for at least three out of the four of those segments. So you, Medicare, Medicaid, and ACA will likely be providing doctors the opportunity for prospective professional capitation in order to, it'll level out the doctor's income for taking care of a population while rewarding them for reducing costs and improving quality. The commercial um, employer-based insurance is gonna be slower, I think. There's gonna be a lot of clamor uh, from physicians to ask the commercial employers to provide prospective payments. But in our market in North Texas, there is a, there's a big resistance to that because they don't see the value on the surface and they're actually fighting for their survival. And so these new ideas of financing healthcare, while a huge part of their budgets is not at the top of their list on how they will survive in the next, you know, in this next mm. recession. So there is a moment here for doctors to get organized better, more clinically integrated, and work diligently on populations that are also very, very vulnerable that need their assistance. And so that's where, that's where I would encourage us to kind of focus. That's kind of where we're focusing in our organization. Wow, that's wonderful. This, um, while uh, the COVID-19 um, situation itself has made, uh, has been like a little bit of a, um, uh, a Debbie Downer, if you will, what you're describing very much is a silver lining and a way to think about the opportunities that lay beyond this crisis. Yeah, I think that that may be just the, the, um, the wisdom of age. If age gives you anything, and by the way, it's, it's not all it's cracked up to be, you know, physically speaking, but it's, uh, <laughs> but it, it does, but, you know, 30 or 35 years of experience kind of shows you things change. They're, they're going to change throughout your career. And, and so you do have to kind of make lemonade out of lemons a lot of times. And so uh, mm. this has been true through the course of my career. Now, the, 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 the flip side of that is there's a tremendous amount of positive things that have happened in healthcare over my career, particularly the therapeutic side, right? I'm a, I'm a living example of mm. you know, all the different repairs that I've had done on my body in order to keep me functional and enjoying, you know, enjoying working. But the financing uh, mechanisms and how we get paid and how the business of healthcare has been very, very complicated and difficult, as, as, you, as you said. But I think that this is really, in, in, it just calls, calls us out that we unfortunately can't, many of us can't just focus only on the science of medicine, you know, the, the, the biochemical or the biological sciences. We we're, we're being forced to uh, consider all those other sciences that we had to consider when we were undergraduates that we got to, we almost stopped thinking about when we, when we started into medical school and then we went into our specialty. Now we have to take that back and, and kind of own the responsibility of understanding those other sciences and how they interact and integrate with, um, with medicine. So that would be my call, my, my call out there. 
Wow. Well, this has been um, a great experience. The message has been holistic, uh, very constructive and uplifting all at the same time. So I appreciate the time you've taken today to speak uh, with us. Um, and I'm sure this will motivate and encourage physicians to seek out um, opportunities to organize better and to identify um, community resources that can facilitate this call to action. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's it's incumbent upon us to to pull together and start having, like you said, podcasts and thought leadership conferences that we can all get on the same page. Totally agree, one hundred percent. Well. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I look forward to chatting again with you. Thank you. you. Soon. Enjoyed it. All righty. Bye bye now.